Our scripture reading this morning is, is from the Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you have uh, a Bible, either electronic or paper version, uh, I ask you to join me in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ to be in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. Let's let's pray before we come to God's word this morning. God, we've read your word. We hear these words that we know you've inspired by the Holy Spirit and now the Holy Spirit's with us now to teach these words to us to show us what they mean to guide us to Jesus and to show us how we can live in him so father we do pray that you would do that this morning set us free from this passage God I pray that we would get to behold the beautiful truth of the gospel this morning and it would change the way we live all of our days. We love you, and we're so glad you love us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have been in a series on discipleship, and uh, this week, so we've been looking, let me say this first, at Matthew 4.19. This is kind of where we get our understanding of what a disciple is. Disciples following Jesus and being changed by Jesus and joining Jesus on mission. So we took three weeks to look at those three parts of what we call our definition of a disciple from Matthew 4.19, and now we're going to spend the rest of the summer looking at different aspects of discipleship. We have some exciting things we're gonna be doing later this summer, just talking about what is disciple, what does it mean to follow Jesus and be a Jesus follower? But this week, we're gonna look at the identity of discipleship, the identity of discipleship. And uh, and I'm excited to see what we learn here in Galatians 2 about our identity as followers of Jesus. 
I'm going to start actually in verse 15, and then in a little bit, we'll go back and we'll see this interesting interaction where Paul opposes Peter. I'm not sure if you knew that that happened, but if you know that if you've read the New Testament, you maybe have heard of Paul and maybe you've heard of Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, and uh, turns out they had a little disagreement at one point. And this, this happens in the church in Antioch, which is an important church in the book of Acts. But in just a minute, we'll come back and we'll look a little bit more about their interaction there in verses 11 to 14. But I'd like us to look first at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now you may say, okay, I can't wait to see your gymnastics to apply that to us today. Because we're talking about Jews and Gentiles and the law. Now, how does this apply to us today? But I would actually like to point out two things that I think Paul mentions in verse 15 and 16 that uh, we can all find in common. The first one is this, that everyone's in the same situation. We're all in the same sinful, broken situation. We all recognize that the world is broken. I think that's one of the most brilliant places you can start when you're sharing the gospel with somebody because I don't know of a single person, I've never met a single person that would actually say, no, the world's not broken, everything's good and getting better. I mean, what a great place to start when you're sharing the gospel because here's the reality. Point number one of our problem here in verses 15 and 16, if we're talking about our problem, number one, we're all in the same situation. We all live in a world that's broken, but we all also experience brokenness inside of us. But then here's the second thing I think Paul points out that we can all find in common. Here's how he says it, that the works of the law cannot fix it. So here's the truth. When we all admit that the world's broken, and here's how you can share the gospel with someone. So what do you do about it? How do you cope with that? You just give up, throw your hands up. Hey, this whole thing's meaningless. I mean, what do you, when we admit the world's broken, when we admit that we're broken, how do we fix it? So we all recognize that there's something wrong in the world. And, and here's where I think we can, we can really identify with Galatians 2, that we all try to fix it by seeking our own, and here's the word from Paul, justification. Now, what does justification mean? It means to be declared right. If you're justified, it's, it's declared that you are right, you are in the right, or in biblical words, it's, you're declared righteous by God. Or I had someone say it to me like this. It, maybe justification and righteousness means as God intended. So do you see how justification goes in line with the world being broken? We know that the world is not as it was intended to be. We know that it's broken. And we look even within our own hearts and our own minds and we say we don't work the way we ought to. So what we're looking for is some kind of justification. We want things to be made right again. We want our own hearts to be made right again. Not just the world outside of us, but we want our own minds and our hearts and our loves and our our behavior. We're, We're looking everywhere. How can we make ourselves right? How can we be justified? And however we try to cope with the brokenness inside of us, however we try to cope with the brokenness in the world is called the flesh. You see, we've all learned patterns of the flesh in our own life that independent of God, independent of Jesus, we've sought our own salvation. We've sought our own justification and we've tried to make ourselves right with God. But here's the truth about our flesh. Our flesh is addicted to what I'll call law thinking. 
law thing. So I'm not talking about capital L law, like Old Testament law. I mean law as in here's a standard and you have to do this much to get to this standard. Now your law thinking of your flesh is probably not the Old Testament law. You're probably not walking around avoiding pigs and shellfish like the Old Testament law says to do. But, but I, would, I would be willing to bet that you have some kind of law in your own life that you say, if only I could do these things, then I feel like I'm going to be made right again. I feel like the brokenness in me is going to be fixed if I could blank. Well, that's your law. That's the way you think according to the law. Maybe you need to be perceived in a certain way. We've developed some shorthand called the curated life. Thank you, social media, for giving us an opportunity to curate what everyone else sees about us, to filter not just our pictures, but to filter our identities. Maybe we have a need. If only I could get approval from other people, then I feel like the brokenness in me would be fixed. Maybe it's having all the right answers and all the knowledge. Maybe it's being liked by others or living a certain lifestyle. Regardless of what it is, you establish a law in your life that you think will fix the brokenness in you. We all do it. We are all seeking our own justification. And remember, justification is just a way that we're making right what's wrong inside of us. It's wrong. Something's wrong. We know something's wrong. And what Paul is saying is that this is true of all of us, whether you're Jews or Gentiles. He says, look, we're Jews by birth. And what he's trying to say is, you think this would be a matter of pride. We're Jews. We have this storied interaction with Yahweh, the creator God. We, we've received the law. We, we ought to be closer to God than anyone. And he says, we're not Gentile sinners, but we're actually born into the community of God that we ought to know the things of God but how many of you know that just because you're born into a wonderful family that loves Jesus doesn't mean you inherit that right and that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 16 yet we know even though they're Jews even though they have the law they have this interaction with God they they know the things of God yet we know that a person is not justified a person is not made right by the works of the law See, we're all seeking acceptance and righteousness and to be made right. And, and here's what Paul's saying here. You cannot earn that. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no amount of works. There's no amount of law. There's no, it's not that you have the wrong law and you need to change it to another law to be made right and to fix the brokenness inside of you. He's saying that's the complete wrong way to think. And in our terms of discipleship, he's saying that's not how you get an identity. So what hope do we have? If it's not according to our flesh, if it's not according to the law, if it's not according to what Paul says, the works of the law, what kind of hope do we have? Here's what we see this morning, that Jesus gives me a new identity for my life. Look at the second part of verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Jesus gives me a new identity for my life and what is that identity? That we are justified by faith in Christ. Let's break that down for just a minute. Justified, we've talked about that. It means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. 
That doesn't mean that God looks at you and he looks inside of you and he says, you know what? I see that really at, the, at your deepest core, you're a good person. And so I'm going to look past this outer fluff and I'm going to see you for who you really are. And I just see a good, righteous person in there. That's not, that's not what justification is in the scriptures. Justification means God looks at you in spite of you and declares you as if in a court of law. Your record has been laid out and you go, surely my verdict is guilty. And God looks at you and says, not guilty. But that's only the negative aspect of being justified before God. It's not just that you're not guilty. It's that he actually looks at you and says, righteous. Righteous. That's what justification is, that in God's eyes, you are not guilty, but you are righteous. That's a struggle because you know internally, like we said earlier, something's not right. But the good news of justification in the scriptures is that we are justified not because of our works, but what does he say? We're justified, declared righteous by God, by faith. And what is faith? Some like to use the phrase, a blind leap of faith, as if faith is opposed to any sort of knowledge or any sort of reason. And I would actually like to give a different definition. It's not a blind leap of faith. Faith is a confident trust. It's a confident trust. And the, the best illustration I could think of is, is when you go, not just to the doctor, but I'm thinking medical emergency. And what do you do with a family member? What do you do when it's time to give birth? You rush to the hospital. When it's time to give birth, you rush to the hospital. That is a medical emergency. Because you can't, you can't stay home. I mean, you can, but... You're praying the whole time. But you go to the hospital, what do you do? Hey, that's not really a blind leap of faith when you go to the hospital for a medical emergency. When you go to the hospital to give birth, that's not blind. You're not going to Target. You're going to the hospital. Why? Because you have confidence in the tools and the expertise of the hospital. That doesn't mean you know how it works. That doesn't mean you know all that the doctors know. But it also doesn't mean it's a blind leap of faith. You have a confidence in them, but you also have a trust in them. It's one thing if you pull up to the hospital doors and you go, yeah, I'm not going in. I know that you probably have all that I need and you can make this thing go a whole lot smoother. I know that you know that, but I'm not gonna trust myself with you. But a confident trust is when you go, hey doc, I know that you have all the expertise and the training. I know you have the experience. I know you have the tools. So I'm gonna let you do whatever you need to do to fix me or to get this baby out or to do this surgery. That's a confident trust. There's good reason for your trust. That's faith. It's not a blind leap. It's a confident trust. And, and faith is, is just like telling the doctors, do whatever it takes. But you have confidence in who those doctors are. When we have faith in Jesus, we have confidence in who we know Jesus is, the perfect God-man who really can save us. Faith is like falling into the arms of Jesus. You know he's gonna catch you, but you still have to fall. It's not like a work, like I've got to muster up enough faith. faith. Faith is actually kind of the opposite. It's saying, I know I don't have what it takes. I need you to do it. So pl please let me receive what you have. So we're justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's no work you can do this morning to fix yourself and be justified before God, be declared right in his eyes but we're justified by faith and that faith has got to be in Jesus. So justified faith, Jesus. 
Theologians call this an alien righteousness. So why is it faith in Jesus? Because Jesus is the only one that has all the righteousness that we need. So the great and beautiful exchange of the Christian life is that all of our sin and all of our record of sin gets put onto Jesus' account and he pays for it perfectly. And all of Jesus' perfect righteousness gets put onto our account that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. That's the great exchange of the Christian life. And that's why it's important that we put our faith in Jesus to be justified. But it first has to come through a thorough dissatisfaction with ourselves. Like if you still think there's something in you that can earn it, you're not going to be desperate enough to turn to Jesus in faith. We have to be thoroughly dissatisfied with ourselves so that we look elsewhere. And then we look at Jesus and we see the perfect righteousness that Jesus has. Because in Jesus, in the cross specifically, we see both justice and grace. We see judgment and love. We see wrath and we see welcome. Because what happened on the cross? Well, in Jesus, God was perfectly punishing sin. Sin sin can't go unpunished. God is holy. And he won't allow sin, which is rebellion against him, to go unpunished. It's going to be punished. And he punishes it graciously in Jesus. And Jesus takes our sin and pays the penalty for it. But in Jesus Also, God is making a way for us sinners who have no other way. That's why the cross is both judgment and grace, wrath and love. He's pouring out his wrath and he's welcoming us home in Jesus. So if we're going to have any hope of satisfying this internal longing that we need to be made right, we've got to look outside of ourselves. And here's how the Bible talks about it. It can't be works of the law. It can't be you trying to earn it. It has to be you putting your confident trust, your faith in Jesus. Because only he can give you that identity. It's not one that you earn, it's one that's been given to you. But when we have this new identity, that new identity is that you are in Jesus and you are justified. And when God looks at you, he doesn't say, so short, so much of a failure, Add it again with the sin. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. He's not keeping a record of your wrong to rub your nose in. He's taking the sin that you've committed and, and Psalm 103 says he's, he's removing it from you as far as the east is from the west. That's your identity. And when you have that kind of identity, this leads us to our second point this morning is that Jesus also gives me a new motivation for my life. A new motivation for my life. There's a man named Richard Lovelace who wrote a book about 40 years ago about revivals and about like renewal in the Christian life. And here's what he said about justification. So he said that many people's day-to-day existence, they, in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Now here's what I mean. Sanctification is how I'm growing in Christ how I'm growing and changing and and learning and maturing. But he says people rely on that for their justification. Now, here's what he means. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. He's saying that people are drawing their assurance of being accepted by God based on their actions 
They're not drawing assurance of their acceptance with God based on Jesus. So, so here's what I want us to see this morning. You can have false assurance of your relationship with God in two ways. One is that you can have a false assurance of your acceptance with God because you think you're good with God when you're not. You can keep looking back and you can keep seeing a, a prayer that you recited when you were a kid. Or maybe you look at your family. Say, man, my parents went to church. My parents are great. Maybe you keep telling yourself, I'm really not all that bad though. Like I don't need all that. So you keep, you have this false assurance that like, hey, me, me and God kind of have an understanding. Me and God kind of have this relationship where he knows I'm not, but we're good. That's, that's false assurance. That's not taking your sin as seriously as God takes your sin. But on the other hand, you can have false assurance because you have no assurance at all of your acceptance with God. You can be constantly terrified that you're going to lose your salvation or that God's angry with you and that you've got to keep the certain religious lifestyle up so that God stays happy with you. But here's what's true about both of these false assurances is that they're all focused on your works. When you're focused on your works before God for your assurance with God, you're never going to be assured. Because you're constantly going to be second guessing, did I do enough? Did I do the right things? What about this sin? What about that sin? What about this bad thought that crept in? Does that mean I've got to go over here and do penance for that and try to re-earn some grace that this one uh, negated and took away from me? You'll have false assurance all of your days of your life if you think your assurance with God is built on your works. You'll never have any assurance with God. Both of these circumstances lead to an overemphasis on works. And that means your motivation. Remember we said our identity gives us a new motivation. Your motivation is that you live for acceptance. You live for love and for grace and for peace. You live in a way that you're trying to get those things. You're trying to earn those things. But, but here's the good news about being in Jesus. True assurance doesn't look at your own works. True assurance looks to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, here's how your motivation changes. You're not living for those things. You're living from those things. I'm not living for love. I'm not living for God's love at all. I'm living from God's love that I've already received it. I'm not living for righteousness that, hey, I've got to do this long list of works so that God will give me righteousness and I'll earn righteousness. No, no, you're living from righteousness that God has already given it to you and now you are free to go live. So your motivation for living is entirely new. That you don't have to live for those things, but you can live from them. You don't have to guess about your relationship with God. You can know. Scripture says you can know and it says you can know not based on yourself, but based on Jesus. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Well, then your motivation to live is not that you're living for any sort of approval from God, but you're living from it. When you're living for it, it's all focused on you. Did I do enough? Have I earned it? Have I, I really want this? But when you're living from God's love, not for it, from God's acceptance, not for it, then your motivation is not about you at all. Your motivation is about God. I've seen God love me when I was at my most unlovable. And I see that God loved me not because I earned it, but because that's who he is. So now I can turn to God. God, I love you. And I really want my life to be different so that it glorifies you. But the only way we can live with this kind of new motivation is if you believe, you really believe that what God says about you is true. I just, I think so many of us struggle with that. 
we don't live as justified people. We live as if we've got to go out and earn it. I mean, I grew up playing sports, so all the cheesy sayings that go with earning things, like, uh, what is it, respect is like rent, or respect, rent's due every day, you got to go out and, you got to go earn it, you got to go earn that respect, and I'm just thinking, like, that's not grace, God's grace is not something you've got to go out and earn fresh every day, like you lay in bed and you go, I don't think I blew it today. Then you wake up in the morning terrified because you go, all right, it's, it's due, rent is due again. I've got to go have another day where I don't royally blow this thing. We don't live as justified people if that's your mindset every day wondering, am I going to lose my salvation? Am I going to lose my favor with God? Am I going to lose his love? Am I going to lose his acceptance? Your identity is settled in stone. You didn't earn your salvation and you can't lose it. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying, look, you tore down the law and works of the law when you admitted you need to be saved by Christ. And that's the only way that you could be saved. You tore down this whole law thinking that said, hey, I can earn my way to God. He tore that down and said, there's no way I can earn my way to God. I need Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, if I say that I need Jesus alone for salvation, and then after I'm saved, I turn right back to the law and say, but I've got to do this to maintain a relationship with God. He's saying, you're rebuilding the very thing you tore down. That's what he's trying to say to Peter in verses 11 to 14. There were very strict Jewish laws and customs that didn't allow them to break bread and fellowship over meals with Gentiles considering it some kind of being unclean and unfaithful and sinful. Peter knew enough about the gospel that he was drawing near to Gentiles because he knew that Gentiles were somehow being welcomed into the kingdom of God. You can go read Acts 14, 15, 16 area and see Peter struggle with clean and unclean. And God has to just come to him in a dream and just tell him because he struggles with it. But in this scenario, Peter's still struggling with it at the church in Antioch. And so he's hanging out with Gentiles, but then he hears that some believers from the church in Jerusalem is coming. Paul calls them the circumcision party. He hears that these Jewish believers are coming, and when they get there, uh, Peter kind of draws back from the Gentiles. Like, no, 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 I, I wasn't hanging out with them. And Paul says, when I saw that his conduct was not in step with the gospel, whoa, <laughs> that's a heavy charge. How could his conduct not be in step with the gospel? This is Peter. Peter was rebuilding what was torn down. He, he was letting the law separate his fellowship with other people who had been saved by grace. And Paul said, no, wait a minute, Peter. You know this whole thing. You know that, yeah, we're Jews, but you know we're not saved by works. You know we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So why are you gonna go back and rebuild this law as the standard for life? when you know that it's Jesus. That's why Paul opposed Peter because Peter, in this moment, his motivation for living was that he had to do some things to earn favor with some people that he thought were of God. He had to do some things to earn favor with God and part of those things were, I can't associate with those people because, hey, this is some sort of the law and I've, I can't do, Paul's saying, out with that. Your motivation for living is not that you're living for any acceptance, it's that you're living from acceptance and love you're living from justification you can have assurance of your relationship with God 
and that completely changes your motivation for living. And the last thing Paul talks about in this passage in Galatians 2, we get down into verse 20 and 21, is that Jesus gives me a new source for my life. So we've been talking about these truths that are about you because of your salvation, that you have a new identity. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. Once and for all, you can never lose that. And that changes your motivation for how you live, that you don't have to try to earn God's love and acceptance, but you've already got it. But now the question comes, so how do I live every day? That's great motivation, but it feels like I don't have the strength. Well, look at what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me, lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to take that second sentence. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I want to break it up and spend the rest of our time looking at those two phrases. First, it's no longer I who live. When Paul says I, he's talking about himself specifically what scripture might call his old self, the old man, the sinful man that he was before Jesus. He's saying that old, sinful, law-living, condemned person, that's not the one who's living anymore. That's not my source, my power for living anymore because that old man didn't have what it took. That's why he needed to be saved in the first place. Because like we said at the beginning, we recognize something's wrong in us. And Paul knew, I've tried to fix what's wrong in me my whole life. And I couldn't do it. So it's not fair for me to come to Jesus to save me. But then I'm still the one trying to live. Because I've already admitted before Jesus, I couldn't do it. So when you come to Jesus, you don't just get a new identity. You get a new source for life. It's Jesus from first to last. It's not Jesus, thanks, I'm going to go do my best. And then I'll see you in heaven. It's Jesus come be my life. Jesus, come be my identity. Jesus, come be my source and power for living. So Paul says, it, it's no longer I who live because my resources for living don't cut it. We've all learned to do life and cope with the brokenness of ourselves and the world based on our sinful flesh. So God doesn't save you so that you can come into a relationship with him and then take another great shot at your own works. Your works weren't good enough for salvation and your works are not good enough for the Christian life. That now we don't have to live out of our old resources. So you can say, if you know Jesus, you can say with Paul, it's no longer I who live. So here's part of the application for you this morning. Just quit. Give up. The things that you have with a stranglehold in your life that you know, I will fix this. And maybe everything else in your life with hard work and determination you've been able to accomplish, but there's something in your life, in your mind, in your world, in your heart that you say, I can't shake this. That is God's grace trying to tell you to give up. Quit spinning your wheels trying to live the Christian life. Quit spinning your wheels trying to live life outside of Christ. But say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but like Paul always does, it doesn't just stay in the negative. He turns, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Christ who saves you, the Christ who gives you his righteousness also lives in you through the Holy Spirit, which we're gonna talk about in the next couple of weeks. That your identity, I was thinking of it like this this week. When, when, Jesus gives you an identity. If all we say is, 
You're justified. God sees you as righteous. Go do whatever you want. You'll die and be good with him. That kind of changes something meaningless about you. And I was thinking, what's an example for something meaningless? Like, that would be like if God changed your middle name. Like, most people don't even know my middle name. He changed something about me, I guess. It's on my birth certificate. No, no, no. God's not changing something meaningless about you when he just says, I'm going to say this is true of you. I'm going to say you're good with me. He says, no, no, I'm going to say you're good with me, but then I'm going to give the same Jesus that made you good with me to empower you to live every day so that you can begin living now the way you're going to live for eternity. Did you know that's what eternal life is? It's not just quantity of life, but it's quality of life. So you don't just have eternal life the way I have like an identification card that I can pull out if I need it. You have eternal life because you have the power and ability and gift to live differently now. You can live an eternal kind of life today. But the only way you can do it is if you say, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This is Jesus' message in John 15 as he's getting within the week of his death on the cross. What are some of his final words? He looks at his disciples and he says, abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says that he's like the vine and we're the branches. Just like a branch can't bear fruit apart from the vine. So we cannot bear fruit apart from Jesus. So he's saying, you've got to abide in me, dwell in me, remain in me. Jesus is our source for living. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer you who live if you know Jesus. But it's Jesus living in you. That is your hope for life. And that's your identity as a disciple. John 15, uh, abide in me. It's not your own strength, your own wisdom, your own power, your own resources for living. It's how you depend on Jesus. I had a counselor last year ask me, so what's a successful day as a parent? Well, not speaking from experience, I would imagine I would feel successful if it was relatively quiet and my kids grew up to know Jesus and, you know, I, that I would teach them something that day, that they would feel loved by me. And I'm, I'm, and I'm watching his face, like, trying to change my answer, like, is this right? Is this wrong? And I, but I was like, I never really thought about that. What's a successful day as a parent? I went home and I asked my dad, like, what, what do you think? What's successful parenting? And I watched him stumble through what I stumbled through. And my counselor said, you know, all that's great. But a successful day as a parent is if you abide in Jesus. Part of that's drawing po- proper boundaries in your life that I can't control the way my kids respond to what I do. But all I can control is, am I depending on Jesus every moment to be everything for me? Because that is what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple doesn't mean you're good enough, strong enough. It's not the few, the proud, the Marines. Every Christian can be a disciple because every Christian is a disciple because every Christian is invited to a life of depending on Jesus. So a successful day as a parent, as a spouse, as a manager, as a business person, as a laborer, as a kid, a successful day, did you depend on Jesus today? Did you trust him? Did you trust that what he said about you is true so that you're not living for his acceptance, but you're living from it? That is what makes each day successful. Did you abide in him? Did you depend on him? Because Jesus 
is not just the starting point of the Christian life. He's not just the diving board, but he's the swimming pool. He's all of it. It's Jesus from first to last. There's a book written a number of years ago by a guy who unfortunately didn't live up to the book uh, or his title of pastor and and, uh, had some moral failings uh, and unfortunately got back into ministry probably quicker than he did than he should have and I think he fell back into some of the same things that he had gone through before and it was really a sad story there's been an unfortunate number of those kind of stories on the last five to ten years and um, I just watched this week the, a funeral of a pastor that ha- had done he was mid-40s and he had had lived I mean, that was his trajectory planted a church and it was humongous and was just a, a bully to his staff and ignored his family at times and uh the, the church fired him said you, you just don't have the right character to be doing this and he went through an incredible restoration process and, and walked with jesus and um god really restored his life and then a year ago may so one year ago right now he he took his own life and uh and i'm just the um my heart just i watched this funeral service this week and Anyways, he, he was a part of the same kind of group where this guy wrote a book. And this book, um, this book was called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. So as we consider Galatians 2 this morning, does your life match that equation? Jesus plus nothing. Or are you adding things to Jesus, thinking, I'm glad Jesus saved me, but I have to keep. What's your law? What's the law of your life that you think, if only I could do this, it's going to fix the brokenness in me. If only I could be strong enough to do these things in the Christian life, then maybe God's going to be happy with me. But, But the good news of what Paul says in Galatians 2 and what the whole Bible says is that it's not you. It's Jesus. It's exactly what Nathan said this morning. The great part about a, a, of a rebirth day is that it's not about me. It's about Jesus. So this morning, you're invited. We're going to sing another song in just a second. So go ahead and come up, Nathan. And we're going to, when we sing this song, you're invited this morning to just give up and receive from God. Stop trying to find justification through the works of the law but instead find justification before the creator God by faith in Jesus. And when you find that justification, realize that you don't have to live for God's acceptance anymore. It is settled. You can know. And because of that, Jesus says, let me be your life. You you can't do it. (laughs) You can keep trying, but you can't. Let me do it. So this morning, I want you to come and rest in Jesus. Celebrate who he is for you. Let's pray. God, we are glad for who you are. We are very glad for your provision in the person and work of Jesus. I'm always amazed at that plan, God, that you that you thought that up. That you knew our sin needed to be paid for because our sin is what's wrong with us on the inside. And as much as we try to seek our own justification, we can't do anything about our sin. It just lingers there and it condemns us to death. But Jesus, you came in and said, you give me your sin and I'm gonna pay for it and then I'm gonna give you my righteousness. Jesus, thank you. What incredible generosity.
That Jesus, though you were rich, you became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in you. As 2 Corinthians says. So God, I pray that this morning you'd set some people free who are wrestling with their justification, who are wrestling with whether or not they're made right with you. God, would you set some people free this morning who really do know you, but they still wrestle with these false assurances of wondering if they're right with you, wondering if they've done enough. I pray that you'd give them peace in their heart because that's what Romans 5 says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. God, I pray that you would send peace into the hearts of your children this morning to know that the striving can cease and the rest can begin. I pray, God, that as we consider what our day-to-day life looks like because of this, that each morning we would wake up and before we think of all the things we've got to do, we would first get this issue settled. God, I am yours. I am loved by you, I am adopted as your son, and I am justified. That means you don't see me as guilty, and nothing I do today will change that. Would you help me to remember that every morning when I wake up this week? That nothing I do each day will change, that I am justified before you and I belong to you. That that is my identity once and for all as a disciple. Discipleship is not a lifelong test that then determines our salvation. Discipleship is a response to you because you've loved us and saved us. So set some people free this morning, God. And before we say amen, I just want to let you know what's going to happen. I'm going to be down here on one side and Lynn's going to be down here on the other side and we're just going to be available to pray. We're going to be singing as well, but come up if you would like prayer. We, We would love to pray with you and help you wrestle with how to apply some of this to your life. If you have anything else going on, we'd love to pray with you. But this last song is meant to be a song of response or an invitation. And the invitation is for you to respond to God's word however you need to. If you need to come bow on the stairs as an altar, come. If you need to turn around in your chair and pray, if you need to just stay seated and pray, if you want to stand and sing, by all means, respond to God's word this morning. God, thank you for doing everything for us. Our declaration this morning is Jesus from first to last. Amen.